Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 17 in the book of Hebrews, titled, Jesus' Priesthood Superior to Aaron's, Part 2, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 through 28. I'm your host, Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. And we continue going through Hebrews, and this is, I think, the third time we're talking about the priestly ministry of Jesus as a continuation in the order of Melchizedek over and above the priestly ministry of Aaron and the the ministry of the Levites in the tent. Can you just remind our listeners of why the author is laboring to make this argument and why it's important for us to understand? Yeah, certainly. This goes back to the, uh, the theme we've been saying again and again of why the author wrote this book. He's writing to Jewish professors of faith in Christ who, under pressure from their Jewish uh, neighbors and family, unsaved family and, and clergy, I guess Jewish priests, uh, were under pressure, strong pressure, to renounce the new covenant and renounce Christ, to turn their backs on Christ and go back to old covenant Judaism. And so the author is unfolding a progressive argument saying that a superior mediator, Jesus, brings us a superior covenant uh, resulting in a superior life. And even in the text we're going to look at today, the author just says better covenant. It's a better covenant. It's not just a newer covenant. It's better than the old covenant. And what we're going to do is we're going to just celebrate that. And, and what I, I really hope is that all of our listeners will realize how much they need the ongoing priestly ministry of Jesus in terms of intercession, but how much we also need to realize the once-for-all perfected sacrifice that Jesus uh, made for us on the basis of which Jesus does all his pleading for us so that we would really immerse ourselves in the superior, the perfect priestly ministry of Jesus. That's for us. But for these first century Jewish believers, they needed to understand the days of that Aaronic or Levitical priesthood were done, it was finished. The time of animal sacrifice was done. It was over. They had to move on now into the new and to never look back. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Right. Now, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read verses 20 through 28. And I want to give you guys just a little sense of the context. In verse 18, he talked about the former commandment being set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. He says, because the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, this is in verse 19, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Mm. So we see here in verse 20 and 21, the author is continuing to just 
wring out every meaning that he can out of Psalm 110, specifically verse 4. What does he focus on in these first two verses? Well, here he focuses on the oath. Uh, he said, the Lord has uh, sworn an oath. And this is very distinct from the Levitical, the establishment of the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthood. There's no oath recorded. It was just law that came down, what God wanted done. And Moses gave the law concerning the priesthood, gave the, the vestments, the clothing to Aaron. And so it started. And, and so it was just not done with an oath. The author makes it very plain. The, those priests were not set up with any oath. But Psalm 110.4 is one of those marvelous inter-Trinitarian conversations that we have a glimpse of in the book of Hebrews. So it's speaking of God the Father, the Lord has sworn. So God the Father swore an oath concerning Jesus. And interesting, usually the one who's stepping up into the office, like the President of the United States, puts his hand in the Bible and swears an oath to be faithful to the, the calling of being president. And so the one who's getting married takes an oath, etc. The one who accepts the office. Here it's the other way around. The one who's giving the office swears an oath on behalf of Jesus. And in this inter-Trinitarian conversation, the Father speaks an oath concerning the Son. I have sworn an oath concerning you, my Son. You are a priest forever. So there's a sense of absolute certitude or permanence to this priesthood. And it's established in three ways. First, the Lord uh, saying it, he swears an oath. So there's this, this it, like the author said earlier, this is the third time in the book of Hebrews, he, the Lord talks about God taking an oath. Um, but here it has to do with the priesthood of Jesus. So that makes it very established. And then it says he will not change his mind. So he's not going back on it. He couldn't lie anyway, but he's not going to change his mind. And then he uses the word forever. You are a priest forever. So that's pretty solid, pretty strong. There's some good evidence right there in the Old Testament of, a, of an eternal priesthood and an eternal savior because mm. no man can live forever apart from the saving work of Christ. That's right, and this is where we celebrate, you know, what happened with Jesus' resurrection. Like it says in the book of Romans, once he died, death no longer has mastery over him. Romans chapter 6, he, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives for God. And he will never die again. So he has this permanent priesthood because he cannot die. Now, when did God swear this oath to Christ? Is this what the covenant theologians call the covenant of redemption? Uh, what, what, when did this happen? I have no idea when it happened, but you really have to feel that it happened before the foundation of the world because all of that most important business concerning our, our salvation, so many of those things are linked to things that happened before God ever said, let there be light. So this was all worked out in the mind of God before anything happened. So the idea that Christ would be a priest forever, you could imagine the Father would have sworn that oath once for all before the foundation of the world. So in other words, the Aaronic priesthood was always meant to be temporary. Yeah, it was a type and a shadow. And, and it's so powerful. What's interesting here, too, is that Melchizedek has really dropped out of view. I mean, we began the chapter with Melchizedek, but he's not mentioned in Psalm 110, verse 4. He doesn't say, in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, I believe, is redeemed, and he's up in heaven on his face before Jesus. He is not co-high priest with Jesus, both of them in the same pattern. He is a type and a shadow. And when Jesus came, the need for all of those types and shadows, including all of the high priests and, and all of that, and Melchizedek himself, they recede, and Jesus is the only final permanent high priest. Right. Now, what conclusion does the author make here in verse 22? 
Well, he gives us that language of better, superior. Uh, Jesus, because of this oath, is, has become the guarantee of a superior or better covenant. So we can make some very strong assertions based on the language of the book of Hebrews. We saw this earlier last time where he talks about the former regulation being set aside because it was weak and ineffectual or useless. Can you imagine if the te text didn't say that, Joel, you saying something like that about the old covenant? Uh, it was weak and ineffective and it's obsolete and aging and all this language. It's very strong language, but the author is doing this because the, the Jewish professors of faith in Christ at that time needed that kind of vigorous language. This is a better covenant, a new covenant, yes, but it's a better covenant. And it was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. Amen. How could, how could we Christians use these verses to share Christ with unbelieving Jews who you know, some unbelieving Jews are more atheistic, uh, but, but some still believe in the Old Testament scriptures, but they can't see Christ. How can we use this in evangelism? Yeah, I think, you know, if anyone identifies themselves as Jewish, first of all, I find that a marvel. I really do. It just shows the, the permanence of the calling of that people, the sons and daughters of Abraham, the biological descendants, that they're still self-conscious as Jews. Um, I think that's a miracle of, of grace, even if they don't see it that way. The fact that the Jewish people still are an identifiable entity on the face of the earth where you don't have Moabites or Ammonites or Amalekites. I don't know any Amalekites. But the Jews continue as an identifiable, uh, identifiable people. And I think what that shows us is, like Romans 11 says, there's a future for Israel, but the future is going to be in Christ. So what I like to do with Jews, even if they're completely secular, uh, completely atheistic, but they've still identified themselves as Jews. There's inevitably some background there. There's some training. It's a good entryway to explain, you know, how the Old Covenant really was preparatory for the work of Christ because it so beautifully points to Jesus. And I love to use the animal sacrificial system as a pointer to Christ's final sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Now, the author uses the fact that the priests were prevented by death from continuing in office, and he contrasts that with with Jesus Christ as the permanent priesthood. And then he says, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost mm. those who draw near to God. What do you get out of this language, the uttermost? Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. Just the idea that our salvation is a process, that we're not done being saved. We still need Jesus to intercede for us. That's what we began talking about at the beginning of this particular podcast. Just be very, very well aware. If you're a Christian, and you're listening to this, you need Jesus to keep saving you. You need him to keep interceding for you. The justification's done once for all, but we are in the process of sanctification, and we need to be saved finally, and saved to the uttermost or saved forever. The idea there is that there's still a work of salvation that needs to go on, uh, really on into eternity. And so that is the sense that we have here. Now, speaking of the death of the Aaronic priests, I looked this up, I didn't know it, but Josephus tells us that there were 83 high priests in succession from Aaron on down. You remember the time when in the, in the scripture when it was time for Aaron to die and he lost his priestly vestments. He had to give them up in favor of his son Eleazar. And so he was the first high priest who died. And then Eleazar died in, in uh, the book of Joshua, I believe, at the end of Joshua, Joshua 24. And he gave up his robes to his son Phineas. And so it began one after the other. Now, some of these high priests were thoroughly ungodly, like clearly the ones that conspired against Jesus, uh, Aaron and, uh, no, not Aaron, uh, Annas and Caiaphas. Uh, they, were, they both served as high priests and they're both thoroughly corrupt. Uh, they were in it for the money. 
So uh, for us, it's like you never know what kind of person you're going to get as a high priest. Well, with Jesus, you have, the text says very plainly, a perfect high priest. He is absolutely perfect, and he will never die. You will never get a worse high priest with Jesus. You could never get a better one. Forever, we're going to have this same high priest, and that's marvelous. But anyway, going back to your, the question you focused on, Jesus is able to save us completely or to save us forever, or as you said the translation, save to the uttermost. So just being mindful of the fact that we're not done being saved, and we need the continual intercession of Jesus on our behalf. And the author says it's fitting you know, fitting, necessary, it had to be this way. Why did it have to be this way? Well, it was fitting because we need this kind of high priest. It's just appropriate. And the perfection of Jesus lines up with God's perfection and lines up with our need. Now, let's, let me take a minute and talk more about Jesus' intercessory ministry because Hebrews 7.25 is the key text uh, on Jesus praying for us. He always lives to intercede for us. He's continually interceding to the Father on our behalf. We need to think about this. First of all, because of his holiness, because he always did and does what pleases the Father, uh, because he, his mind and his heart are so perfectly in concert and in unity with the Father, what that means is he gets 100% of the things he asks for. He never asks amiss. We know that if we pray according to the will of God, we have what we ask because God will give it to us. Jesus is perfectly asking according to the will of the Father. And we need him to pray for us, to intercede for us, because we're still in danger. We are assaulted every day by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The enemies are too strong for us. They will most certainly overwhelm us. And so Jesus intercedes for us and prays for us. And we may wonder, what does he pray for? But this is where the statement that Jesus made, recorded for us in Luke uh, 22, verse 31, I think it is, where Peter had boasted that even if all fell away, he never would. And Jesus told him the truth that that very night he would deny him three times. But he told him this, and it's only recorded for us in Luke's gospel. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you, plural, all of you, like wheat. But I've prayed specifically for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So that gives us a vital glimpse into the intercessory prayer ministry of Jesus. He prays that our faith will not fail. Now, I think it's important for us to realize that if Jesus does not pray for us, and if the Father does not answer those prayers, our faith will fail. We will stop believing in Jesus. But I don't believe that we will ever stop believing in Jesus because Jesus is praying for us that our faith won't fail. And so, therefore, we should realize we're needy, we're dependent, but all of our needs are met. Such a high priest meets our need. It's wonderful to know also in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in accordance with the will of God. So we've got the second and the third persons of the Trinity agreeing together to pray for our final salvation. Now, there's this helpful picture that I love quote, uh, talking about from Pilgrim's Progress, which gives us a sense of the need that we have for this ongoing priestly ministry of Jesus, his prayer ministry. And in Bunyan's allegory in the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress, there's a character named Christian who's making a journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city, uh, from being an unconverted man under the wrath of God, uh, living on a condemned planet Earth, um, all the way up to, to heaven. And he's got a journey to make. It's a picture of the entire Christian life. 
Well, early in the journey, he is taken into a place called the interpreter's house, and the interpreter represents uh, allegorically a, a pastor, I think, that shows him many analogies or allegories or pictures that help him understand aspects of the Christian life. And my favorite is the fire burning against the wall. And so he shows him this little vignette of a hearth. You could picture a hearth like made of marble up against a marble wall, something like that. And there's this, this flame burning. Um, but then there's this individual that's pouring water on the fire to put it out. But no matter what he does, he can't put it out. The fire keeps burning. And the interpreter says, I'll show you the reason for this. And he has him around behind the wall. And behind the wall, there's another one, another man, who is feeding oil into the bottom of the fire through a pipe. And so he's pouring oil in, keeping the fire burning. So that's the vignette. Well, what does it mean? He says, well, the fire burning against the wall represents the work of grace in a Christian's life. The one trying to put it out with water is Satan. But no matter what Satan does, he cannot stop the work of grace in a true Christian's life. And why? Because Jesus is feeding it with the oil of his grace, sustaining that work, continually feeding that fire of grace. But Bunyan says he's behind the wall showing that the tempted who are being assaulted by the world of flesh and devil cannot always see how Christ is sustaining the work of grace in their lives. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It of is. Christ's prayer ministry. But then for me to just quote Hebrews, he says, but we see him, yeah, you know, crowned with glory and honor. Yeah, by faith. By faith. And, and, and that Amen. story and also the book of Hebrews does give us a picture that Jesus is continually feeding us. Let me say one more thing about that. I also feel that my ministry as a pastor is part of that feeding. That, that I am called on to feed the flock. You know how in Luke 22 he said, when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. Well, when Peter repented of his denying Jesus, when he turned back, he acted as a pastor to his brothers. He fed them by the word of God. You remember how in, in John 21, three times uh, Peter uh, asserted that he loved Jesus. He said, feed my sheep. And so my task is to feed the flock with the Word of God. So that's part of it. Jesus prays for us, but he also used the ministry of the Word to feed us. Amen. Now we've been talking about the superiority of Christ with regards to his immortality, his priestly ministry. Now we get to the pure sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ. He says, it was, in, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Can you talk about the sacrifice of Christ, what it accomplished, and then also just how all the, the rituals and the Old Testament sacrifices, even the details of the type of, of you know, lamb they would have to sacrifice, all pointed to Jesus Christ? Absolutely. I mean, this is the, the perfection of Christ's priestly ministry is his own person. He is personally holy and pure. So there, there are no disqualifiers for him in terms of his office. He is a holy and pure priest. Um, he himself never sinned, so he doesn't need to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as all of those priests needed to do. They're all sinners. Even the best of men, they're still sinful. As Romans 3 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. But Jesus was perfectly righteous, and he has no need to offer any sacrifice for himself. He's always holy, pure, and blameless, and he's set apart unto God and holy. And then he offered himself once for all on the cross. That is the perfect atonement, the atoning work of Christ, the once-for-all aspect. Now, for me, that's vital because all of those animal sacrifices were offered again and again 
by priests who died and then were replaced by other men. And so it shows how weak and ineffective that whole system was. It was just symbolic. Yeah, you get the picture of a, a man coming, bringing a bull, just having to say to the priest, I'll probably see you next week. Yeah. You know, it, it, it wasn't sufficient. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, endless, endless need. But, but the perfection and the infinite, infinite worth and value of the blood of Jesus. It, it didn't need to be repeated. It didn't need to go on day after day. It didn't need to even go on to the next day. Just in, in a handful of hours, like one minor prophet said, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So that shows the infinite worth and value of the blood of the only begotten Son of God, once for all, never again to be repeated. Now, here's the thing. I want to say this with gentleness, but it's true. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and one of the things that happens again and again is the priest in every Mass offers up the wafer, offers up what they call a dry sacrifice. And there's a lot of theology behind it, but I don't accept that theology. I think we really need to understand the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. There is no need to offer up or extend our arms up, holding away for as, as though we are offering Jesus up. He's already been offered once for all. And we don't need any earthly priest to do it. Jesus presents the worth and value of his once for all sacrifice forever by his intercessory ministry. So that's the, the perfection here of both what is offered, namely the once for all perfect blood, his own blood, and then the perfection of his intercessory prayer ministry for us. Yeah, the that offered once that you're hitting on, it's, that's multiple times though the Hebrews, he mm -hmm. actually emphasizes the once aspect. Absolutely. He mentions, mentions it again in, at the end of chapter 9. Yeah, we'll look forward to talking about that. But, you know, I don't want to say it gently, but I think it's important to realize there's a, a fundamental flaw in the Mass. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's false doctrine. And we need to look to the book of Hebrews that says once for all. Yeah. For anybody who's perhaps new to Christianity, these images of Jesus as the sacrifice, these are why we sing songs about the blood. You know, nothing but the blood of Jesus being mm -hmm. plunged in the blood. This is the substance that bought our forgiveness of sins. And it's rooted in the Old Testament, but it's consummated in Christ, who does offer up actual blood sacrifice mm -hmm. to propitiate for our sins. Yeah, and the, the uh, book of Leviticus makes it very plain that the life of the creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for your sins. And so the linking of blood, it really was a matter of death. It comes back to Adam, you know, uh, the death penalty uh, that we deserve for our sins. All sin, even what we think is the smallest sin, deserves death. I mean, immediate death and eternal death, every sin. And so Jesus stood under that death penalty on our behalf and the shedding of his blood finalized that death penalty that we deserve. It was a, a real death. His lifeblood was poured out on our behalf. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to add to Absolutely. these verses? Yeah, I just would urge all of our hearers, go back again and again to Hebrews 7.25. Um, I think this is one of the most important verses in the entire New Testament on prayer. We should realize that we will never get ahead of Jesus as an intercessory prayer warrior. You are already thoroughly prayed for, if you're a Christian. Completely, totally prayed for. Now, do not imagine that, therefore, we don't need to pray for each other. We do, and that's exemplified in the New Testament. Again and again, the Apostle Paul asks for prayer or says he prays for, for them. So he is praying. But here's the thing. I think that the best way we can see prayer is that we are entering into the prayer ministry of Jesus. 
He's gone ahead of us in that prayer ministry. And we're just joining with him and praying for what he's already praying for. Furthermore, let's bring in that lesson from Luke 22 concerning Simon Peter. Let's pray for each other that our faith will not fail. You know, if you hear that a brother or sister is going through a trial, maybe a medical trial or a financial trial, or maybe you don't know of anything, but you just want to pray for them today. Pray that their faith won't fail. Pray that no matter what temptations go on today, that they'll continue strongly believing in Jesus, trusting in him for their salvation. That dynamic sustaining of our faith is a healthy way to understand the dependence we have on Jesus. And it also teaches us about prayer. I want to pray for somebody that I've heard is in the hospital or that is going through a certain trial. Oh God, please be with her. Lord, be with him. That, 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 that person's faith won't fail. Sustain their faith. Feed their faith. Get them in the word. You know, Lord, give them a word of encouragement, a word of promise or something like that. It's a very active way that we can pray for each other. Yeah. Well, that concludes Hebrews chapter 7, and that was episode 17 in the Two Journeys podcast. Please join us next time for episode 18, and we transition to chapter 8, and we're going to talk about the earthly tent versus the heavenly tent. So we're still in the realm of, of sacrificial system, but we're going to talk about the tabernacle and the tent, and then we'll talk about the glory of the new covenant over and against the old. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.